What if passports were stamped with experiences instead of places? With Luxury Gold, each journey brings you unforgettable passport moments. In Japan, join a private sushi making class with a master chef and witness the cherry blossoms alongside a tree doctor. Experiences like these are the golden threads that make up your Luxury Gold journey. To learn more, contact your travel advisor or visit luxurygold.com forward slash Japan. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time, if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, friends. How are you? Good to be back. On this episode of the podcast, I interviewed Caitlin Shez. She wrote the book right here. It's called The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here. Caitlin is a writer. She is studying for her PhD, and she's also a host on the Holy Post podcast. So, Honestly, I read her book. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very thought-provoking, very helpful. We talk a lot about like how do we get past just like rhetoric on social media and get into nuance and complexity? What do we do with the evangelical tradition that we've inherited? How do we find faith again in helpful and helpful and healthy ways that promote human flourishing? So this is a really fun interview. Uh, Caitlin is really, really wise. And um, yeah, thank you, Caitlin. If you're watching this for coming on, it means the world. Folks, thanks so much for being here. As always, if you like what you see or what you're listening to, you can subscribe to either our YouTube channel or our podcast. We are also on Instagram and TikTok and we are a non-profit organization. So I know a lot of people are used to Patreon where you might spend 10 bucks a month and get extra podcast episodes or something like that. We do a, we have a different approach. We are a nonprofit organization. We offer everything that we do completely paywall free. The reason we're able to do that is because people like you donate to make this work possible. All donations are tax deductible. You can click on the link in our show notes or in the description if you're watching on YouTube and learn how to do that. A sincere thank you to all of our donors that make this work possible. You are truly holding space for so many as they find better paths forward in their faith. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Caitlin. Talk to you all later on. 
Big news, friends. The podcast is heading back to Theology Beer Camp hosted by Trip Floor. Now, Noah and I went last year, and it was an amazing time. We met so many of you, and we're doing it again this year in October. You'll get to hang out with podcasts like ours. You have permission with Dan Koch, The Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns and Jared Bias, and so many more. And there are amazing scholars like Adam Clark, Thomas J. Ord, and John Dominic Crossan with more speakers and podcasts to be announced. The sooner you you get tickets, the cheaper they are. In fact, if you use promo code TNEGODPOD, you'll get $25 off your ticket. Let me tell you something. If you are looking for better ways forward in the Christian tradition, this is the event to come to. Yes, you get to hear from some amazing speakers and hear some amazing lectures, but the secret sauce in beer camp is that you get to hang out with these folks and listen to them in conversation. Plus, you get to hang out with Noah and I for a few days and have a great time. Use promo code T-N-E God Pod for $25 off your ticket, and I'll see you in Missouri in October with me and Noah, Trip Fuller, all the great scholars, all the great podcasts. I'll see you then. All right, well, Caitlin Chess, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. One of um, our volunteer coordinators reached out to me today and was like, oh my God, I saw you're interviewing Caitlin on the podcast. I'm so excited for it. So here, here you are. It's happening. Thanks for making time. It means a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I like to ask my guests all the same starting question. I need to know your background. Did you grow up in evangelical spaces and how did you end up doing the work that you do now. Obviously, we're here to talk about your book. So you're a writer. Mm -hmm. You're doing a lot of study work. You're on the Holy Post podcast. So kind of give me the the nutshell version of baby Caitlin and now (laughs) what you're doing now, Caitlin. Sure. I was just talking to someone the other day. We were asking about like who had who at the table had the best evangelical pedigree Um, (laughs) as a group of people who, you know, some would consider themselves evangelical now, many would not. And I, I feel like I won because the historian Molly Worthen, who's a historian of evangelicalism, once wrote in a New York Times article that I had a sterling evangelical pedigree. So if a historian says you have a sterling evangelical pedigree, I feel like that means you do. Um, Can't argue with that. Yes, yes. So I grew up in evangelical churches kind of all over the U.S. Um, my dad is in the military, so we moved every couple of years. And I feel like that kind of solidified for me the sense that the church that I was in was kind of the whole church because we lived in lots of different places, but the churches we went to were always pretty much exactly the same church. Um, (laughs) So grew up in evangelical churches. I went to Liberty University for my undergrad. So both um, some evangelical pedigree there. And also I was there from 2012 to 2016. So I like to say that I kind of saw, you know, a shift from when I was interview or when I was kind of touring Liberty as a high school senior. I remember the tour guide saying, you know, we're kind of moving away from the Falwell legacy and the moral majority kind of thing. And by the time I graduated in 2016, that was obviously very not true. (laughs) Um, And so my whole last two years of college, um, you know, I started as a political science major. I became a history major because the political science department was kind of a hard place to be at Liberty for a while. Mm. Um, And I, by the time I graduated, my last two years were really full of, you know, national media on campus, contentious conversations. I was on the debate team, which had the reputation of being like where the liberals were. Um, (laughs) And so we kind of struggled through some stuff. We had a lot of people that were writers. And so we were processing together what was happening. I'm so thankful 
for that experience of traveling to other schools, engaging with a diversity of arguments, and having some great mentors that helped me process how I was changing at that time when I was at Liberty. I mean, that was my first experience with Christian education. I had grown up in public school. And so Liberty University was Christian education to me, and that was a, a difficult experience. Um, yeah. And then I went straight from there to Dallas Theological Seminary. So again, another kind of notch on my <laughs> evangelical pedigree. Um, I was there for five years. I was on staff at a very conservative, um, non-denominational Bible church in Dallas, Texas, and finished my THM there. So I did you know, 130 something credit hours um, in lots of different things. And then about halfway through that time there realized, um, you know, I wrote a book in 2020 about spiritual formation and political engagement mm -hmm. and kind of felt like I'm not done studying that. I want to serve the church, especially the evangelical church. They're my people and they're where I come from. And they're honestly still the church that I'm at now is in some ways, I think they're evangelicals that would kind of you know, be uncomfortable with me calling it an evangelical church, mostly because a woman preaches many Sundays, but um, it is still a pretty evangelical church. And so I still feel really committed to serving the church in general, but especially the evangelical church, which I think has really siloed itself off from some significant Christian resources. And so I started my doctorate um, at Duke University in political theology to try and get some more of those resources, to try and help translate some of the things that I'm reading for people in churches who are asking some of the questions I was asking when I was in college. Like, is there something more than this? Is there a better theology for understanding our political life? Is there actually a theology that can help me critique the church that I'm in now and some of the leaders that really have betrayed me? And so that's a lot of the work that I do now is mostly with churches or with Christian colleges or with campus ministries at non-Christian colleges, trying to kind of say, what are some spiritual formation resources? What are some scriptural resources? What are some resources in the Christian tradition throughout history and in other places in the world than the one I'm at? for helping us navigate, especially our political lives. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's a reason why it's the new evangelicals, not the dead ones. You know, <laughs> I mean, I feel very much the same way. Um, you know, I tell people that my tradition radicalized me for Jesus, you know, yeah. and I still feel very much like an obligation to do whatever I can to make that thing better, even if that means in some ways dismantling harmful things that it's yes. doing or that it's built on. Right. So I think a lot of people listening are like, yes, I think that's why I'm trying to find better paths forward in, in the Christian yeah, tradition. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing all that. And it's always, you know, it's always nice to hear someone who grew up in, in the same kind of bubble because once you're outside of it, like I, I play music on the weekends and my band, they have no clue. Like no, yeah. no one I talk to <laughs> has any idea about like deconstruction or evangelicalism. And it's actually kind of a nice break. Sure. And it's a good reminder yeah. that, that like there's a whole world out there. But when you meet someone with the same kind of background, it's like, oh, you get all the inside jokes. So yes, that's, that's yeah. really helpful. <laughs> so I am kind of curious, you know, for you, I, I'm sure you're aware of the term deconstruction. It's not a yeah. term that we use a whole lot these days. It kind of, I call it an explosion, people going in all different directions. But I think uh, maybe a, a more neutral term is like renegotiating faith mm -hmm. um, or someone's theology, having a crisis of theology. Would you say that was a part of your journey where you got to a point. I mean, for me, it was definitely 2016 was kind of the tipping point with Trump where yeah. I just said, I have to like rethink what am I a part of and how do we get here? Is that a similar vein for you or is it different? What, what, what does that journey look like? 
Yeah. You know, I feel really thankful that my experience and the language you've used, I really like. I also like uh, my friend Kate Boyd talks about untangling Mm. and Mm -hmm. I like that language too. Um, I'm really thankful that I had that experience with a lot of really faithful people who didn't condemn me for asking questions or reading things outside of my little community. And so I think that process for me wasn't as scary or unsettling as it can be for a lot of people because I had support and I had people who were like, yes, read this book. You know, I had a professor in seminary, I remember, who gave me the book that ended up talking me out of dispensationalism. And he was happy for that. You know, he was like, here, yes, read this, like explore your questions. And so I don't think I had quite the same. And and I'm thankful for this because I know people for whom it is a really scary, unsettling thing. For me, I mean, one moment that has really stuck in my mind from that period of time is actually after I was at Liberty, it was the the morning after the 2016 election. And so I'm fresh off of being at Liberty, but I'm in my first semester of seminary at Dallas, which was good in some ways. I was excited to study theology. It was also my first real exposure to like really deep sexism in theological education. I had experienced it in the church, but I kind of had this idea that like, we're all students. Like there can't be a problem with me being here. And that was silly of me. So I'm in this whole place where I'm like trying to figure out if I should stay and what's happening. And I was like lots of people really shocked by the results of the 2016 election. And I just remember the morning after the election, I was at a Starbucks across the street from my house studying Greek which felt really silly. I was like, I'm learning this ancient language no one speaks anymore. To read a Bible, we have tons of translations in, in English. Um, And like the world's falling apart around me. And also the leaders, many of the leaders who I trusted kind of far from me and even some very close to me who encouraged me to go to seminary have really revealed their great hypocrisy, their moral failure and all of this. And so what am I even doing? Like, and also, can I have a job at a church? I'm a woman. Like I just spent all semester hearing I can't do anything. What am I supposed to do? Mm. And we were translating at Dallas. There's this thing where you have to do all of these observations um, in Acts 1-8. You know, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so I remember I was translating that verse from Greek into English and it struck me from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, realizing I am the ends of the earth. <laughs> like when Jesus is telling his disciples this, there's no like picture in their mind of anyone like me and any place like me and in any place like I'm in. And it was weirdly comforting to realize, okay, for all of my criticisms of the evangelical, the white evangelical church in the US, for all of the real failures of it, we are at the margins of this story. We are not at the center. And there was something both kind of, you know, condemning of my own selfishness in that, but also really comforting to say, okay, there is something broader beyond the expression of faith that I have learned. And what is it going to take for me to discover that and to lean into that and to learn from people who are different from me? And so that was really, I'm thankful that I had people that helped me do that well. But I also think that strange moment of clarity towards the beginning of that process for me helped direct my questions towards, okay, what are Christians doing on the other side of the world? What did Christians do 500 years ago? What were their answers Mm -hmm. to some of the questions I'm asking? And how could I focus less on kind of reinventing the wheel as if no one has asked the questions I'm asking? And how Mm -hmm. do I instead kind of sit at the feet of people who have faced real suffering, have been marginalized by the church in the past and in the present? And how do I learn from them and have that shape my faith in the in the present? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think a lot of people 
um, that we that we work with and you know talk to when they ask those questions. It wasn't so much the questions. I think that like the evangelical church is all about the questions as mm-hmm. long as you come to the right answers. Um, sure. And once you are like, actually, I'm not convinced that maybe eternal conscious torment is the most faithful way to see hell. Yeah. That's when it's like, actually, okay, well, you found our boundaries. So now you, yeah, you have yeah. to leave. I think a lot of people experience that. And then when they had this explosion and then they found people online, like, oh my God, I'm not alone in this stuff. I mean, that, that was how I started this. I, I was like, anyone else out there? And then boom, this thing just happened. Mm. But I think some of us almost feel, and I'm still working through my own feelings on this, but I, I'm kind of angry that people taught me that this is the only way to be Christian and everyone yeah. outside of my own bubble is not a true Christian. Yeah. Only to discover, as you said, that, and I'm not an academic, okay? I'm the first one to admit that. But even like a light reading of just some church history or even American evangelicalism yeah. will just show that like, Actually, there's always been a plethora of debate around almost all of these things. And so I think a lot of us walk away thinking like, well, how do I, what do I do? Do I even, do do I want to stay in this house called Christianity? Is there any room beyond the basement that I grew up in, right? And so I think that's really helpful that folks like you are committed to, it sounds like helping people understand that, hey, if you want to stay Christian, there's a lot of ways to stay Christian that actually might be more focused towards all of human flourishing and more inclusive of our neighbors uh, and not so exclusive. So, you know, I think that that's very important work for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. So that brings us to the meat and potatoes of this interview, the book that you have just written, (laughs) The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here. Man, it's like someone was in my head and wrote a book. Um, I have read most of the book. I'm pretty much all the way through it. I have really enjoyed it. It's been very, I feel like, and I don't want to assume things because writing a book, I can't imagine. It just feels like it must be so much time and energy and like pounding your head against the table. But I feel like what you did in this book is you've done a really good job of taking all different topics and kind of giving like just some high level overview, like context. Here's how the church previously has seen these issues. Also in American culture, Mm -hmm. here's some ways that people have seen these issues. And then kind of like, you know, think about it through that lens of just it's bigger than maybe how you were taught to see these issues in. Was that kind of one of the purposes for the book or for you? What was the main driving force that made you say, I have to write a book called Mm -hmm. the ballot and the Bible and helping Christians think about these things? Yeah, I mean very similar to what you said. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I really I both really wanted to write a book about how we read scripture in our political conversations because it is so abused often online and in-person conversations. I also wanted to encourage people to actually have conversations in their churches or in their families or in their communities with people who share a desire for scripture to shape their public life but to have a better conversation. I think most of the conversations we have now, speaking from someone who's been in a lot of these churches, is we just kind of throw verses at each other and we act like if anyone disagrees with us, it's just because they're not taking the Bible seriously enough. Right, right. And so I wanted that to really be the heart of it was it's it's really about how we're reading scripture together. This is not an individual exercise. This is something we do in communi- community, especially the whole communion of saints across time and around the world. But I also didn't want to kind of jump in and go like, okay, let's talk about it in the context of current political issues. Because what I've learned in the last few years of doing a lot of kind of showing up to churches, pastors will be like, could you come on a Tuesday night and just like fix this? Like, could you just kind of come and like deal with our stuff? Wave your magic wand and, you know, abracadabra. If you give a really great speech, it'll just kind of fix everything. And (laughs) what I have learned is 
I I think the most fruitful political, social, et cetera, you know, controversial conversations I have had in churches have happened when we were like halfway through Jeremiah and like whatever was happening in the news by the power of the Holy Spirit was aligned with what was happening in Jeremiah. And we had a conversation that previous generations of leadership in that church had sworn we could never have. It's too contentious. It's too impossible. And yet when we were studying scripture together, it was possible. So I wanted to be able to to do that without it being, okay, come on a Tuesday night, let's get ready to fight, bring all of your opinions. But in the in the context of conversation around scripture, the the context of kind of putting it in terms of American history was to say, okay, on one hand, I want tangible examples. I want there to be things that we say, okay, let's actually think about this question that happened at a certain time in a certain place but not the issue that feels like so immediately contentious to you. So the example that actually first started the idea of the book was, okay, let's talk about Romans 13 in the context of both Black Lives Matter protests, COVID restriction. Like, let's figure out in the midst of all these difficult things we're dealing with what Romans 13 means. But I don't want to jump right to that. Like, we all have, you know, strong feelings. Our walls come up. We have ideas about what other people believe and what community that makes them, the identity they have. What if we first said, well, is the way that you are using Romans 13 on Facebook or on Twitter or in your conversations in your church, does it actually align with how you think about how Romans 13 was used by loyalist priests during the Revolutionary War? <laughs> and if the way you're using it today would actually disqualify the way it was used or the way it was interpreted by loyalists and revolutionary you know, priests and lay people in the Revolutionary War, could that kind of make you uncomfortable enough that you rethink how you're reading it. If you're uncomfortable with the way loyalists are using Romans 13 to say the revolution is, you know, an affront to God, does that mean it doesn't mean something you think it means when it comes to Black Lives Matter protests? <laughs> is it possible mm-hmm. that we could rethink our interpretation of it? And so the goal really was both to understand as Americans, we inherit certain reading habits of scripture. And I want us to be yep. conscientious of that. But also to say, could by could we learn something by exploring these issues that are both close to us as Americans, they feel relevant, but are far enough away that maybe we have the distance necessary necessary to lower the temperature a little bit in our conversations and actually meet, you know, find common ground with each other, find a way that scripture actually can form our public lives and not just through the kind of partisan lines that we have found ourselves in, the cherry-picked verses on social media, those kinds of things. Maybe we could actually come away with actually, I'm really excited about scripture. I want to learn more. But I've also learned that maybe the way that I've been using it, I've been using it pretty uncritically. And I actually haven't learned how to be faithful with it. I've just kind of accepted the ways that it's been read in the past, especially by political leaders. Do you think that, um, I mean, just put bluntly, do you think it's salvageable? Like that way of thinking, you know, nuanced and with complexity, because I think about two different things. First, I think that social media in general, doesn't matter who you are, does not lend itself um, to nuance and complexity, right? They want, I mean, Instagram's algorithm for reels wants you to hook someone in three seconds. You have yeah. three seconds to hook someone, right? So we have that. Then we also have like this world of it's so incredibly partisan right now. And I am one of them. And I, I, I tell people, listen, I don't know how you look at Trump and go, wow, how did he not divide us even further? I don't get it. So yeah. count me as one of the partisans, I guess, if, if that's the standard. I have to, I, I, I acknowledge that, right? So we have that. And then we have this, um, I call it this evangelical fundamentalist view of the Bible. That's just like, hey, you know, the Bible's, Bible says it or God says it, it's clear, you know, that settles it kind of thing. Just yeah. read it. 
Um, and then you're taught, like, okay, I just read it. I just read the Bible. Like I just read the verses and then boom, it means this. And therefore the Bible's clear. I'm standing on the word of God. That's like three pretty massive universes, right? To unpack, to get people to even have the conversation of what you're yeah. talking about. You know, I, and honestly, I, your book is really helpful in doing that. Right. But we all, again, reading a book takes time. People need to get it out there. What do you, what do you make of like the current moment that we're in and how we, we move forward? I, yeah. I really, I mean, just one more example. I have to say, it. I, I don't know. I feel like we're at a point in America where I feel like I'm arguing with, with people who believe in a flat earth. That's the level of like mm-hmm. disconnect. I'm like, guys, I, 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 how much, how much more data evidence, like video yeah. footage do you need before we can agree that regardless of our political positions now, like this was not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, well, no, it didn't happen that way. I'm like, okay, I don't know where to move yeah. from this. Right. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? And like, how, how can this book kind of maybe help us think a little more critically and kind of push the needle forward together? Yeah. I mean, I fully expect him for this book to completely change all of those massive dynamics. That you oh, did. perfect. Great. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, you know, I will say there's this book uh, Stanley Hauerwas wrote uh, quite a while ago called Unleashing the Scriptures. And he makes a very provocative, a very characteristically Hauerwasian provocative claim at the beginning where he says, you know, what we really need to do now is take the Bible out of the hands of American Christians because they've misused it. We just need to take it out of their hands. Um, I need this book. Who is this person? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would recommend, it's a good book. I would recommend it. But I feel like this this book for me is saying on some level, I understand the kind of severity of that claim. We have misused scripture so much, we don't deserve to use it. Um, Mm. And and I'm very aware that it just, the forces you have described make it so difficult for it to play the role that it hypothetically could play in Christian churches. My answer to Howard Was, who says this, is I actually want to keep the Bible in the hands of American Christians. I just want them to open it. <laughs> I think of, you know, I start the book with this image of Trump standing in front of St. John's Episcopal Church um, during yeah. all of the protests and holding the Bible in front of the church. And he doesn't open it. He doesn't go into the church to hear someone preach it. He doesn't do any. He just holds it. It's just a prop in front of the crowds to kind of prove a supposedly Christian identity. And I think that's a pretty good image, actually, of what Howard West was talking about. Like, get get that Bible out of the hands of that man who's standing and just kind of holding it in front of people. What I do want people to do is to open it and read it. And I actually think we read it itself so much less than we ever have before. I mean, if there's anything I learned in this history, it's that we have misused it and used it well, you know, both at all times throughout history. We just used to be able to use much more obscure references <laughs> because people just knew it better. So they could, you know, give very strange examples, you know, earlier in our history. Um, so one, on one hand, I think my answer to that is just to say, I think the context in which we read it in communities and not in the and not in the context of let's get into a political conversation and fight it out is one of the few places I think we actually could have some productive conversations. Like I said, I was at a church where the leadership had sworn up and down, we can't talk about race, we can't talk about economics, Mm. we can't talk about politics. And I wasn't, that was not a, you know, hypothetical I was giving earlier. We were halfway through Jeremiah and there were curfews that kept us from doing Bible study too late because of the protests that were happening in Dallas for racial justice. And the conversations we had when we were halfway through Jeremiah, when we were all committed to understanding this difficult book and, and understanding how it then demanded we live in the world we lived in that was different, 
was something I have I have never seen in another kind of context other than this Bible study. So on one hand, I think I might have what seems to be an overly optimistic or naive sense of, I do think the Holy Spirit uses the word of God and the people of God to do really incredible things. I also yeah. think part of the books, part of the desire to write the book was also, I understand, especially people our age who are thinking, you know, maybe there's a whole other host of things they could be thinking about politics. But when it comes to scripture, they're thinking what I just said, it's been too abused. It's like not even worth it to try. Um, I'm not going to see what scripture might say to my political life because I've seen how mm. horribly that goes. And I understand that impulse. And for a certain amount of time, that might be the right response. Part yeah. of my interest in talking about American history was to say there has been great misuse. But also, if you take the Bible out of American politics, you don't have a civil rights movement. Like mm -hmm. there have been really faithful movements towards justice motivated by scripture's demand to care for the marginalized and to really condemn the oppressor. And I want us to be able to, to go to scripture for those motivating reasons for the spiritual formation we need to sustain really difficult political work, not just so that we can kind of hash out with each other what policies to support or what politician to vote for. But as you just described, when you're feeling like I am arguing with flat earthers, <laughs> I don't know how to do this. I actually think scripture has incredible resources for us to, to kind of form us into the kind of people who can have that conversation over and over again and still love and still try and still seek justice, even when it feels impossible. And those are the kinds of scriptural resources I want us to, to return to and reclaim, even if this doesn't really move the needle very much in a large national conversation. That's never how the most, you know, really faithful, righteous movements have gone. It's been, I'm thinking my own context in Durham, North Carolina, there were incredible things that happened during the civil rights movement here that were five people in a church praying and then showing up at a protest. And if that's the kind of thing that we can find resources in scripture to do, even if we don't kind of do the big national things that we think are necessary, that's the kind of work that I think, you know, that's where the spirit is at. And that's where faithfulness has happened in the past. And I think including now in the present. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I often joke to my friends, like, you know, I understand why the Catholics weren't a fan of everyone having their own Bible and interpreting for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. I, I get it. You know, yeah, I, I'm yeah. not, if I had to pick, I'd, I, I would still pick the Protestant, you know, view of this, but I get the sentiment of like, totally. eh, be careful because depending on how people start interpreting this thing. And I think at this point in my life and, and where I am, like in my own faith, I'm convinced that you know, I was taught that like the Bible is objectively just a moral rule book that if followed will always lead to human flourishing. What I discovered is that the Bible is a tool that can be used and has been used to liberate, right? It's been used as a tool for liberation. It's also been used as a weapon for oppression. Yeah. Like we can, I think we just have to be honest about our own, you know, history, even like yeah. way back in the day, right? Um, that there's always kind of been these like competing ways of like, of, of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, we are realizing, I'm talking really about, about myself here, maybe some, some people in the audience, is that I, I really grew up in a vein of Christian thinking that used the Bible to maintain their own privilege, supremacy, status quo, whatever, and then use the Bible as a defense to not listen to the plight of other people in this country uh, who have historically been marginalized, right? Yeah. And so I agree with you. Like there, sometimes I'll, I'll meet people who are like, oh, if only we had no Bibles or, you know, tax the churches. I'm like, well, I'm not saying that like tax, uh, that, that mega churches who break their nonprofit agreement 
you know, for, should be taxed. But like the average church is 80, is 80 people. Yeah. It's yeah. $80,000 is like their annual donation, you know? So it's a little more complicated than just the Bible is or isn't. It's, well, how are people using it? And I agree. I mean, the civil rights movement doesn't happen. MLK, like the foundation was the scriptures, right? Yeah. And so I think what makes it difficult for me, and I would love your thoughts on this, is it seems like we are in a um, religious and political climate that has been very effective at convincing people that they own the corner on mm-hmm. what it means to be mm-hmm. a biblical Christian, right? Like they own the corner of what it means to be a true Christian. And I often tell people like, I don't think fundamentalists are even that are even good fundamentalists. Like if you just read <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount literally with no context, you yeah. come up with a very different you know perspective. What are your thoughts on that? And you know, have you seen movement? Do you or do you think there is possibility for movement going forward? It's a very tough like you know, um, thing to break through, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I promise this is an answer to your, to your question, (laughs) even though it initially will not seem that way. Um, one of, one of my favorite parts of this new book, um, is on kind of civil war era interpretation, especially as it it concerns slavery. And Hmm. one of the things that really struck me, and this was not something that I had thought I would discover. This wasn't how I had heard a lot of people kind of talk about the debate was I learned that a lot of scholars who are looking at this will just basically talk about white abolitionists and white pro-slavery folks and talk about their Hmm. two ways of interpreting scripture. And they'll Hmm. say, okay, the white pro-slavery folks were the literalists. They said, okay, here, here, you know, Paul says slaves obey your masters, Abraham owned slaves, bam, there you go. We're the literalists. And then the abolitionist folks had to do, had to kind of adopt these new ways of interpreting scripture they were getting from Europe and this historical criticism and this new theology that focused on love or something. Um, And so they were the, you know, not very orthodox or less, you know, they were the more liberal side of things. And so it doesn't surprise me that kind of conservative Christians will look at that and either be really uncomfortable with that or go, okay, like, you know, am I stuck with these, like, are these the options? Um, Not a lot of scholars look at Black, enslaved, or free interpreters of scripture who were doing neither of those things. Both of those approaches, I think, actually are treating scripture as you just described as a guidebook. Where are the rules? One of them says, okay, look, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Here's the verse, you know, chapter verse. There we go. The other side still is sort of saying, I need scripture to give me explicit instruction on what I do now. And since I very reasonably don't think that these verses are the instruction for right now, I'm going to give it this kind of, I'm going to have a kind of kernel and husk approach. I'm going to get rid of all the historical stuff and get down to the spiritual center. And that will tell me what to do. And the center is love, which I think is actually true and really a you know beautiful description of how God relates to us. But both of those are just like, tell me the rules. And they're, they have mm-hmm. to be universal rules yeah. for all time and places. And one of them is just kind of literalist in one sense, but the other one is kind of literalist too. It's just like, give me a universal rule. I don't want to have to yes. think very hard. Whereas right. what most Black enslaved and free interpreters were doing is saying, Scripture is a story about God's redemptive activity with God's people. And so I'm going to look for examples in that story that match my circumstances. And the one they most often went to is the Exodus to say, we are the oppressed people here. And this is what God did for justice in the past. And so not only are we going to believe in faith that God will act for justice now for us, whether immediately or in the future or in the eschatological future, there were many of them who said, look, I can fight (laughs) for justice now. And even if they kill me, I know that in the end, God will secure justice for me. So not only what God will do, but also what role I play. How am I supposed to act? What kind of language am I supposed to use? What kind of actions am I supposed to do? And what does faithfulness look like in this time and place 
Because actually the people of God, while we are separated in some sense by time and space, we are also the communion of saints across time and space. And so I can hope in what God did then, but I also can believe in a certain sense, we really are the people of God. Like Moses is really leading us out of Egypt to the promised land. And that is not looking at scripture like a moral guidebook or a list of rules or a historical document. It's looking at it to say, this is a book for the people of God, and we are receiving those stories in faith that God will continue to act this way. And that's a criticism both of uh, both sides, of like the white abolitionists and the white pro-slavery folks. Both of them are really reading scripture wrongly. And I say all of that just to say, I think part of what's at stake here is not just kind of where in scripture we go, or do we have yeah. the right kind of hermeneutical rules? Like some of this is easy. When you say that, you know, America is Israel and the promises made to Israel are for America. That's an easy one. Like, okay, no, right. I my hermeneutics right. 101 class at Dallas told me that was wrong. That's not hard. But what's mm -hmm. harder is saying, is my entire approach to scripture actually kind of wrong? And is mm -hmm. it kind of wrong? Not like, this is true for evangelicals, but it's true for a lot of American, a lot of Western Christians in general. Like we have learned some really well ingrained and poor habits about reading scripture. And it's going to take a lot of work for us to treat the, treat scriptures like the thing it is instead of the things we want it to be. Well, I think that's why I'm so hesitant to quote the Bible, sure. even in the work that I do. Because yeah. I'm like, oh, I don't want to hijack these verses in unhealthy ways. You know, I'm a big fan of the Bible Project, uh, Tim Mackey and John Collins. I mean, they pretty much saved my faith when, when I was going through my own stuff. And one of the things that I really learned listening to a lot of their podcasts is like themes instead of like verses, mm -hmm. you know, like yeah. what's, what's the theme that we're pulling out here? And like, maybe just like the, the broad arc of scripture. And that's helped me. That's given me like, okay, there are ideas that we see in scripture that are bent towards this thing, maybe liberation, or maybe it's towards the, the blessing of God expanding outward instead yeah. of inward. And then I think about Scott McKnight's book, the blue parakeet, where he essentially says like, it's on every Christian generation to interpret the Christian tradition that they inherit for their day and their way. Yeah. Right. And I, I, those two things kind of mixed together have helped me to, you know, okay. Say, okay, there are principles here. How do I apply them? But I think a lot of us, I'm almost, I'm not scared to read the Bible. I'm scared to think how I'm interpreting what I'm reading because I'm yeah. like, how do I trust myself? How do I trust that the people who interpreted these passages are right? I mean, all it takes is one damn McClellan video on YouTube and you're like, oh my God, like my whole thing has just been like reoriented. I had no idea this, this word actually meant this. So, you know, what's your like recommendation yeah. to people who are not academic people like me, yeah. right? I mean, I'm yeah. homeschooled for nine years. I I'm, I'm curious. I, I love listening to scholars. I love listening to, to people unpack the word, but how do I like, do I just read the Bible on my own and hope that I'm interpreting it right in my head? Like what's your advice for people in my situation? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. Cause I do, I think everything you've just described is true for a lot of Christians. Um, as you just described people who are like, I mean, I get this question all the time about translations because, you know, thank God for scholars who have helped us see the biases in some translation committees. The downside, yes. though, is people feel immobilized. Like, what do I right. do? Like, how do I? I'm not a Greek scholar, a Hebrew. There's like three languages you have to learn just to interpret the whole thing. So, like, what am I supposed to do? And the first thing I, I generally tell people is, like, do take a breath. It really is okay. <laughs> On one hand, all of this is helpful and good. On the other hand, if I really believe that there are faithful Christians all around the world and throughout history that have done this without all of that, 
then I have to believe that that's not absolutely necessary. I have learned so much from Christians, especially in you know, marginalized areas of the world, from marginalized communities who just did not have access to the kind of academic theology that I have. And I believe the Holy Spirit is working in them. Um, and so I think one thing to say is just like, do take a breath. The Holy Spirit, I actually think, is real and working in our communities. But the last thing you said I think is really important because I think some people think, okay, I, I have to really dig into everything. I have to read all the books. I have to read all the blogs. I have to follow the podcast. Or I just sit by myself and read the Bible. I think, honestly, the greatest resource that many of us have is just the community of faith that is pretty proximate to us. Um, yes, there will be people there who will say really wild things <laughs> about what they think is happening in the Bible. Um, yes, there will be mistakes. Um, but if you really believe that the Holy Spirit is indwelling not just you, but other people in your immediate context, then reading it in a group, in a community, is really crucial. And you will actually learn things that biblical scholars can't tell you. You know, I was I was in a Bible study this last year, very demographically different from me in some ways. I mean, I was the youngest person in the group by probably 30 years. It, it met, you know, 11 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. So what like working person <laughs> can no normally go to this, <laughs> yeah. you know? It was a very classic yeah. evangelical women's At Bible Cracker study. Barrel, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, we were struggling a few times in my academic world. There had been a bunch of disputes recently about the degree to which women needed to, especially women seeking ordination, needed to be able to exegete passages of sexual violence. Was that something that should be required of them or not? And that's a whole conversation. I'm not trying to kind of make a statement on that, but it was interesting to hear all these back and forth from a bunch of scholars, including a lot of scholars who were not women or had not experienced sexual violence, but just had an opinion about this. And then to go to my Bible study and hear a woman, we were going through Genesis. There's a ton of sexual violence in Genesis. I don't even remember which story. That's how like how often it happens. But we were at some certain story and a woman in this group said, I love reading this and remembering that God was there and saw what happened and was present with this woman and basically shared that something really awful had happened to her. She'd experienced sexual violence at a young age and that it was comforting to her to read this and know that God saw what happened to her too and that the arc of scripture is God's eventual bringing of all things right and that God saw what happened to her and God promised to bring justice ultimately. Um, and that was not a part of the conversation a bunch of scholars were having <laughs> about how we interpret these passages. This was a woman who had experienced something in her own life that shaped how she interpreted it. So I say all of that just to say, I don't want people to miss the resource they have in their communities. That broaches a, a larger question of how difficult it can be for many people to find that community. And that's a really important question. But just to say that that it actually, I think it would be worse for your spiritual life and for your right interpretation of scripture for you to read a ton of books and listen to a ton of podcasts, but do all of that by yourself with just you and your Bible. Well, I think that is the full circle moment for a lot of us where we go, we're, I, I had no one, right? Like yeah. I lost my faith community, right? Yeah. And I'm not, what I'm not doing is trying to point out like how what you're saying is not uh, helpful. I think it's really helpful. I think you're right completely. I think it only emphasizes the need for like this prodigal movement yeah. of people who gave everything to their churches, ended up not being enough, or they 
renegotiated their faith or they came out, you know, as queer or something happened that caused them to lose that. Right. And then they find like, well, what do I do now alone in my room? I think that's why there's so many accounts and places that have exploded digitally because people are like, well, this is not perfect. I much prefer to even talk to you, Caitlin, in person, you know, not not digitally, uh, but I'll take what I can get. Right. Because we are naturally communal people. I think that's I think that that is a big part of how we do the Christian life together, right? Like we're not the Western individual uh, approach is not helpful in this way. Mm -hmm. And I think even COVID kind of showed like how, how unhelpful that idea is when it comes to like things that affect our neighbors. So I I definitely agree with you on that uh, for sure. I am kind of curious, you know, I know that you do you are you like an official podcast host of the Holy Post? How does Mm -hmm. that work? Are you like a, a contributor on paper? I don't know. You guys always have someone new, I feel like, on that show. <laughs> I am a host, yes. You're a host. Okay. Yeah. So you're a host on The Holy Post. Um, and, you know, you guys are interesting because I've listened to quite a few of your episodes and you're not really easy to pin down, which I think is good. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, when it comes to like political or, or theological stuff, I think that's actually important, right? Because things are so uh, partisan and they're so like, you're either this or you're that. Yeah. I'm curious from your vantage point, you know, you said earlier that that you feel an, an obligation and a need to like be part of the evangelical thing and make it better. Do you think it is as it's currently expressed salvageable? Hmm. Asking you bluntly, because I, depending on the day, I go back and forth. There sure. are days where I'm like, burn this thing down. Then there are days where I'm like, well, I just saw a glimpse of like maybe some hope here, you know? And so I'm curious from someone like you who's reading church history, who's studying this stuff and also very, of course, intertwined in what's happening now. Where do you think we're at with this? Because I I don't know. I think we're starting to flatline, but I I would love your opinion. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I mean, I I resonate with what you just said about like, I have days when I'm like, I don't know, like maybe we can fix some things. And then other times I'm like, nope, burn it down. Um, You know, I do think, so I'll say, I think there's a difference between evangelical institutions, like larger than individual churches. Though I think once you get to like mega church territory, that's kind of an institution on its own. Um, I, I don't feel particularly hopeful about every institution, every evangelical institution. Um, I feel really hopeful about the churches that I've been in, um, the people mm. that I know that are in smaller communities. And I will say part of the reason that I have a great desire to seek a healthier, more faithful evangelicalism is not because I'm particularly optimistic that we will kind of, you know, rise again. I'm not interested in anything that would be like, let's make sure we really maintain our status (laughs) or power. But I do, I live in a pretty progressive city that has a lot of undergrads, you know, tons of students at Duke, but lots of other universities as well. There is a line of mainline churches across the street from campus that on paper should be the obvious place for the students to go, right? They're more welcoming. They're more progressive politically. If you're talking about sexuality, they're more open. Like that should be where students go. And yet way more students find some way to carpool to the like evangelical mega church in the area. Yeah. And on some, I'm cynical about that in some ways. I think like, (laughs) well, we just can't offer all the cool lights and cameras and shows that they can offer. I'm sorry we we don't have smoke machines. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But then there's a part of me that goes, I've, I've talked to some of these students, some of these young, you know, college students who will say, you know, I met someone there and they believe this. Like, I've never met someone who actually, like I could tell they believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that was attractive to me. And I wanted to figure out what to do next. Mm. And so part of the reason I think I'm really passionate about 
a healthier, more faithful evangelicalism is because I actually don't think it's going to die. <laughs> like I'm looking yeah. at these young people and saying yeah. like, they're going to this church that, you know, has some problems, I think is also doing some really good things. And I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to make it a place where they're not going through the level of deconstruction that I've seen friends go through in 10 or 15 years. Um, not because I think it's, you know, a bad thing to go through, but because it is scary. And I would like them to instead have a safe place to land as they continue to ask questions. And so yeah. part of it is that I just, I really do think, um, I'm not as I'm not as pessimistic as others might be about where this is headed, but I also... I, I want to be open-handed. Like if I know anything yeah. from scripture and church history, it's that the Holy Spirit moves in unexpected places and in unexpected people. And we can't really chart it out in the future, one way or the other, either to maintain our power or to kind of say, oh, well, the church is dying, whatever. Like we really don't know. I, I don't feel confident about the direction things are going. I do feel like I've been planted here. And that's why I also want to tell people, if you're trying to figure out, you know, what's the strategic next thing I don't know that we can plan for the future. I think we have to be open-handed and alert to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And then we also have to say, how has God gifted me and where has God put me? Like, am I supposed to stay at this evangelical church? People will ask me that all the time. And most mm -hmm. of the time I say, I can't tell you. Like, right. it's going to take people in your life. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take time. Like, it might be. You might be the perfect person to 10 years from now, some horrible thing is happening at that church and you were the person that can tell the truth about it and give real guidance and comfort to people who have suffered. Or it might be time for you to go. It might not be unhealthy for you or you might not have yeah. what is really necessary to sustain yourself in those years. I'm not sure. But I do think I have come to a place where I know this is where I've been planted. I think this is where for now I'm supposed to stay. Yeah, no, listen, I feel you. Um, there's a book by uh, Donald Dayton, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage. Mm -hmm, I really mm -hmm. enjoyed that book. And, you know, I think that we forget that even the term evangelical is incredibly malleable. Yes. And everyone's trying to own it, but there is like no set definition of like what that looks like. I just finished um, Isaac Sharp's book, The Other Evangelicals, mm -hmm. another like just history reminder of of other types of people who try to be a part of whatever's happening. And so I am with you on that where I'm like, well, like I think if the term means someone who brings good news, and I don't think we have good news to bring anymore, we should bring that back. Like that's yeah. that, that's yeah. an easy shoe in, you know, of like evangelical. Um, when it comes to like, I don't know, the SBC, you know, uh, disfellowshipping Rick Warren because of women leadership, I'm like, well, that can go away. Like that institution yeah. can just, they, yeah. they can go away. That's fine. You know, so I, I think I tend to agree with you in that regard of like, yeah, there are probably a lot of churches that would land more evangelical that are doing great things. And I should also be clear to the audience, you know, I don't think if someone's conservative, they're automatically bad. I mean, like, like Russell Moore is a good example of this. He's a pretty conservative, yeah. like by the book evangelical, who's also not a Christian nationalist. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're not necessarily talking about uh, like the hardline reform, like, uh, you know, types. Um, but um, I... I just go back and forth. I really do. You know, and depending on like yeah. on what I'm seeing Charlie Kirk do with this pastor or this person, I'm just like, oh my God, I don't know if sure. we can like do, I'm not sure how much longer we can do this. I do think though, to one point I, I wanted to mention as you were talking, I think a lot of people with the mainline thing, and I'm one of these people, it's not that I don't want to go. It just doesn't really interest me to go like super liturgical. Not that I don't respect sure, or think like sure. it's amazing or beautiful or grounded in history. Like, I think all of that. But unfortunately, my brain's already been wired, like just for not that expression of like a Sunday morning gathering. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people are like, yeah, not that not that I think the megachurch model is good, but I'm just kind of used to a more like modern 
yeah. approach to like the church expression, but I can't do it with like the misogyny and the homophobia. I'm like, <laughs> you know, so like there's groups, uh, what is it? The uh, post evangelical collective by like Z- with Zach Lambert and David Gushy kind of like growing this like church network of people who are more evangelical presenting, but a little more progressive in like their theology. So maybe in the next couple of years, we'll see more of those kinds of churches spring up, right? That are trying to kind of marry the two. So that's always a possibility. Yeah. And I'll just say while you were, while you were talking, I was thinking, um, you know, I end the book with this story um, that I just like, it really got me <laughs> when I read it. It was mm-hmm. like, I can remember sitting in the library reading this. I was reading this speech that um, Bonhoeffer gave to a group of young people really close to the rise of Hitler in Germany. And it's a famous speech because he has this line about reading scripture against ourselves, not just reading for ourselves, but against ourselves. But there's a different part in it that actually really got to me where he's describing a man coming to him and saying, you know, the church is dying. And you can include, you could say evangelical church, you could say church in general. I think for him, he probably was thinking pretty conservative Protestant church. The church is dying. What do we do? And Bonhoeffer's response to him was, well, you know, the the faith, the faithless, pious person. So the person who is, you know, says says they're so pious, but they don't actually have any faith. Their response to this is to say, "No, the church will rise again. Like, come on, let's do it. Like, no, you're too pessimistic." The faithless, not pious person will celebrate. Okay, great, the church is dead. Let's let's celebrate. That's great. The faithful person, the actually faithful person who hears the church is dying, will say, "Of course." Because the church has always lived in her dying, in her resurrection, just as her Lord resurrected. And to me, that's such a beautiful statement of we don't respond to larger demographic changes in the church. We don't respond to institutions dying. We don't respond to changes in how many people are showing up at our individual church, either saying, no, 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 we'll rise again. Don't worry. We'll reclaim our status and our power. Or saying, great, let's pack it all up. This thing had a great run and now it's over. We respond by saying, we believe in resurrection. We're people who believe mm-hmm. that for ourselves. We believe that of our right. Savior. We believe that of the people of God because Christ is faithful to his church, even if it's small, even if it looks different, even if it's in a very different part of the world than we think the church should be. I think that's really well put. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, I I I think it's it's pretty wishful thinking to imagine a dead church. Like it's just it's been two thousand plus years, guys. Yeah. The church yeah. can adapt. That that's what makes it that's what makes it so successful, right? Is it can take on the cultural characteristics of like its environment and and just kind of be in that system. And unfortunately, I think maybe the evangelical church in our context has taken on too many of like that white supremacy, you know, kind yeah. of context and Christian nationalist context. But I think you're right. I don't think the answer is well, the church needs to die. I think the church needs to be reborn, right? And and also, this is like part of church history, right? This yeah, is the Reformation. Yes. This is, the, these are some of the big schisms. Like this is kind of part and parcel for like what the church does. I feel like, and it's always hard to know, I, I tend not to, I don't want to overemphasize the moment where, where we are historically, but I do feel like we're kind of on the either rise or crest of a, of a wave for like a big push for, um, you know, church reform, especially in the evangelical context, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, my tradition is not mainline like, like you, Caitlin. And so do you kind of feel that too, or do you feel like it's kind of too early to tell and history will tell that story? Yeah. I mean, I think in the immediate future, there is a lot of energy around reevaluating our kind of method of church governance, our understanding of the role of pastors, our concern for abuse, and our understanding of gender and sexuality. Like, I think all of those conversations are happening, even in pretty conservative churches these days. Yeah. Um, I would be hesitant to say, like, what that means long term, because like I said, right. I both think, you know, the spirit will move where the spirit moves, and I don't know what that will look like. But I also think 
I always want to be hesitant. You know, I'm like you, like pretty young (laughs) and like trying to figure this out and trying to give the best kind of resources and wisdom I have, but I'm young and I don't know. But one of the things I've really tried to kind of keep myself from doing um, is kind of taking this like above history posture and making the kinds of judgments about now or the past or the future that I don't know that I have the perspective necessarily to make. I want to treat both the past and the present with the kind of compassion um, that I would want given to me, but also with the kind of caution that says, you know what, in 10 years, I could change my mind about some of the judgments that I'm making now. I want to make them as faithfully as I can now, but I also don't want to kind of have have the assumption that I have this superior position on history and can make judgments that I wouldn't want other people making. I think that's really fair. So let me ask it a different way. If 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 I said, hey, what would you want Right. The what would you want things to look like in 10 years? What would be success for you? Like people read the book and they change their mind in certain ways. Yeah. What are some of those metrics of like this would be amazing if we kind of got here in a mm. decade or two decades? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um I mean, for me specifically thinking about the book, I would just love if we had more conversations in our churches around scripture and our public life. So that means both that some churches are going to have to go, we actually have to talk about this. We can't pretend like that's something that we do outside the church walls. We actually need to have Mm. conversations, sometimes about very specific things. Like we're going to have to talk about policies. We're going to have to talk about our posture in our communities. We're going to have to talk about politicians. Like this shapes our lives and we need to have conversations about it in church walls. But then on the other end is to say, and they, it needs to involve scripture. Like we can't, even it's, even though it has been so misused, I don't want us to lose this great resource that we have. And one of the parts of this that I think is really important, and this is less about the book and more about where I would love to see evangelical churches go in the future, is we do more intergenerationally. We don't kind of silo ourselves out into children's ministry and youth ministry, and then the adults have our own thing. I would love to see us have more conversations where teenagers get a say in what we talk about and where like little kids are running around so we can't kind of pretend we live lives unattached to the needs of vulnerable people. Um, I have seen some really amazing conversations happen, even in my own church, when parents actually listened to their teenagers talk about what they were seeing in their schools and in their communities and asking questions about what the Bible says. Um, I would love to see our churches be more diverse in all sorts of ways. I think that's how we will have the best interpretations of scripture when there's socioeconomic, racial, ethnic diversity, national diversity. Um, But I also think one thing that would be easy because most of our churches are pretty diverse generationally. We just silo out into different places. That's an untapped source, I think, of of really having some better conversations about scripture and our public lives. Because if the experience I've had with teenagers is any indication, like they don't take some of the lines that we have taken in the past to think like my life can be spliced up in these different ways. They're asking big questions about if scripture has anything to say to their whole lives. They're invested in politics. They care about justice and what happens in the country. And so I would love to see just that change of we have these conversations about scripture and public life, but we do them really, truly intergenerationally. Hmm. That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I. Yeah, I. Maybe that'd be great. You know, I think a lot of people that I work with and hear from, they feel that split even with their parents, right? Where they're like, yeah, I, you know, I, my parents can't even talk to me about politics because it's just like MAGA, 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 MAGA. And if I say anything, it's like, I'm woke, I'm a leftist, I'm a liberal. And I think, you know, this is a different conversation for a different time, but I think that a lot of people, um, 
not all, but I think a lot of folks, even in the church, really underestimate like the power of like the right wing media world. Mm-hmm. Like the, I grew up on talk radio my whole life. So, yeah. you know, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin was just totally. like in my, in the air I breathe. And now watching them kind of evolve to social media and just even what's happening on Twitter with Elon Musk, it's, mm-hmm. it's been very fascinating to watch. And it's, it's fascinating to see how that rhetoric over time kind of infects the minds of people to make them not able to have like a nuanced and like conversation, but it's all about defense and offense, right? Like yeah. who can destroy the other person's argument and thus prove like that, that they are the superior being. And I think a lot of people, I think Gen Z is a big indicator of this, right? Like I don't think Gen Z statistically is on board for that way of thinking, especially when it comes to issues around gender and sexuality yeah. and injustice. But I think as we've also been learning, it doesn't take a lot of people to gain the power and funding and control to really, you know, affect the lives of other people who maybe wouldn't want their lives to be affected. Does that that make sense? Totally. Totally. And I, like I said before, I mean, some of these larger dynamics are not things that I think are easily changed. I also think if we are more thoughtful about what actually pushes back against some of that, we could make some better decisions. One being, you know, my church this last year, we did Wednesday night supper in small groups. The small groups were intentionally intergenerational. And we had dinner before we went into small groups. Initially, that probably doesn't sound like I'm even responding at all to the power of cable news to shape us. But the process of eating together, having yeah. a break from media consumption for a full hour before we even start talking about scripture, being in intentional intergenerational communities, I don't think it fixes the kind of way that, and I don't just think it's cable news. Like I think for younger people, it can be the TikTok algorithm can really melt your brain and you totally. end up in a place that's pretty polarized, pretty in, um, you know intense, extreme. Um, I don't think we can fix all of that. I definitely can't fix all of that. But I do think to your point, Tim, there's so much more that we could be doing if especially pastors, you know, Sunday school teachers, you know, people in families could think about what are small things? I can't fix all of these larger dynamics, but what are small things that could help push back against the ways I've learned to think? You know, what are surprising questions I could ask that don't just fit neatly into the lines that have been drawn by cable news? What are the small ways I could lower the temperature in this conversation by the vulnerability of eating food together, by the way that children are running around and make us kind of uncomfortable? Like, what are those kinds of things I could do to have that conversation be the best that it can be if I can't magically kind of keep my parent or grandparent from watching Fox News ever again? Yeah, you know, I've been to um, two different Turning Point events. I went to America Fest in December, um, and then I went to their pastor summit a couple months ago recently. And, you know, I went because I had to experience it. I'm like, I have to go. And I met a lot of people, including people who work for Turning Point, right? And one of the things that stuck with me is the realization that they're also human beings Mm -hmm. made in the image of God. And then they're they're not just like Christian nationalist robots. And interestingly enough, a few of them like got my number and they've reached out to me a few times. And like, we've talked about some other things and we obviously have massive disagreements. They know what I do. We critique Charlie Kirk. Like it's all, none none of it's a secret. Right. But like those conversations have actually in, in weird ways opened the door for me to maybe like get through to some of like the level yeah. of rhetoric that they use that yeah. maybe one day might help lower the temperature by half a degree. Right? right. And so if I just was doing YouTube response videos or doing, you know, hot, hot takes on Twitter mm-hmm. or something like that, I don't think we would get through the same way as opposed to just having a conversation. They see my humanity. Yes. I see their humanity. And then over time, are there ways to move forward? 
you know, that actually promote human flourishing for all of our neighbors that are rooted in the way of Jesus, right? So I think I think you're right. Meals, in-person, conversation, I think are a subversive way of doing that. The problem is, A, they take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. They're not instant. And B, and this is my take. I'm not saying this is your take. But my take is that these institutions are causing so much harm to marginalized communities consistently. Mm-hmm. So like, there's a sense of urgency for me and I don't want to come across as someone who's like trying to play, well, both sides, guys. Like, no, right. for me, this is not a both sides issue, right? But pragmatically, whatever I can do to help lower that temperature, I'm going to freaking do for the sake of my neighbors and my friends who are really the targets of so much of that rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. And this is where I think it comes back to, you know, there it doesn't have to be pietistic, to say, I actually do believe in the resurrection of the dead. I actually do believe what it says at the end of Revelation that God is coming to be with God's people, to wipe every tear from every eye, to make everything new again. And if I believe that, I can work really hard for for justice on earth. That doesn't have to mean I just sort of sit around waiting to be plucked out of here. But it does mean there are certain sacrifices I'm not willing to make. Like there are certain things that I, I want to reach a certain political social goal. I'm not willing to trample over other people to do it. I'm not willing right. to to really harm people, even if I think they're wrong or even if I actually think they're bad. There are certain limitations to what I will do that come from believing in the resurrection. And this is where I think both conservative and progressive Christians again need to go back to the civil rights movement and say, like, what can we learn from people who not only secured some really incredible legal and social gains, but also really focused on the state of their souls at the same time. Yeah, great. Well, the book is The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here. When does the book come out? August 22nd. This podcast will be out by then. So make sure you pick it up, friends. I'll put a link in the bio. Caitlin, it was really great having you on. Thanks for the work that you do with the Holy Post. And of course, you're writing this book. And please keep in touch. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thanks so much, Tim. Looking for a new career? Welcome to Do HVAC Training Service Center in North Charleston. Enroll today in our comprehensive HVAC training hands-on field experience-based program covering troubleshooting, maintenance, installation, and more on various HVAC systems and ductwork. We offer EPA and NAIC preparation and testing along with various certifications. Enjoy payment options. Achieve certification in under five months. Enroll now for your new journey of skill development and career advancement. Log on to DEWHVACTrainingSC.com to enroll inquire.